This morning we're going to be reading from Psalm 32, a maskil of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Good morning, everybody. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Isn't that one of the best songs ever? Except most of the time when we sing it, we sing that first line, amazing grace, we love that, and then we get to saved a wretch like me, and it's got a little asterisk next to it, and in the footnotes, it would be like, hypothetically speaking, <laughs> right? If I were as much of a wretch as that song describes, God could even save me then. Thank goodness I'm not, right? We sing that song and we say, that saved a wretch like me, I was once lost, now I'm found, I was blind, but now I see. You know, the person that wrote that song, John Newton, wasn't one of these kind of socially acceptable kind of sinners. He wasn't one of these people that um, you want to bring up your sins in polite company because there's something actually kind of endearing about it. No, his sins were the kind that you wouldn't mention around anybody. He was a slave trader. And in fact, his sins have gotten worse as time has gone on. Even in his day, it was something you wouldn't really talk about. It was something that to his dying day, he was ashamed about. And towards the end of his life, when he had become a pastor, and he is a pastor's pastor, he has been a mentor to me and so many others because of what God rescued him from. At the end of his life, he went blind. And it brings so much meaning to that psalm that when he went blind, then he was really able to see. Amen. He was able to see his sin, and he's able to see his Savior. In fact, he said at the end of his life, one of my favorite quotes of his, my, my life is almost ended, and I can't remember much, but this much I remember, that I am a great sinner, and God is a great Savior. Isn't that a great life maxim? God, I am a great sinner, but the God I serve is a great Savior. And this morning, we're going to talk about what it means for God to be a great Savior through this psalm, which is a psalm about repentance and confession. What does it mean to turn to God generally and be saved by Him? But then, what does it mean to live a life that constantly turns to God 
for relief and freedom from our sin. A few years ago, when I was doing college ministry, I had a guy that worked for me who was from Rwanda. And they had this scholarship program where it was the best of the best in Rwanda would come to Oklahoma Christian University on a scholarship. It was almost like a road scholarship kind of program for the best of the best in Rwanda. And so he had been one of those people. He was one of the smartest, most amazing guys. He became like a brother to me. We did ministry together for many years. And at one point, he needed a car, and so I didn't really need mine at the time, so I gave him my car for about a month. And I didn't see him one Wednesday night at our church, and I thought, that's kind of weird, you know, since he is required to be here. So I, why, why wasn't he here? He didn't call or anything. So I called him the next morning, and I said, hey, where were you last night? And there was a long pause on the phone. He says, I need to, I need to tell you something. And I said, okay. He said, so a couple of days ago, I was driving, and I was going a little bit over the speed limit, and I got pulled over. And when I got pulled over, the officer came up and got me out of the car and said, did you know that there's a warrant out for your arrest? <laughs> he said, I didn't know that there was a warrant out for my arrest. And he said, yeah, you haven't paid or shown up for any of the tickets that you've gotten. So he said, so what happened was he took me, took my driver's license, and we left the car on the side of the road. And I didn't want to tell you about it because I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I said, okay, well, we got work to do. When's your court date? So he told me it was like a couple weeks out, and so I said, well, I'll get the car, and let's worry about the court date. So we go to the court together, and I will say this is my first time ever to go, so I was also new to this, and I went, and so we go up, and, and when it's your turn, you know, when you're in that big room, I'm assuming none of you guys know what this is like, you're in this big room, and they call you up individually, and you go up, and so both of us went up there before the judge. And the judge looks down at the thing and he says, okay, I'm guessing you're Jean-Vier Faraja. Who are you? Pointing at me. I said, I need to tell you a few things about this situation. I'm Jean-Vier's friend. Jean-Vier is from Rwanda. He's the greatest guy you've ever known. This is a big misunderstanding. Could you please help us? So he begins to ask him questions, begin to talk through everything. And after about five minutes, he realizes this is, if there's ever been an honest mistake, this is it. He didn't know how our system worked. He didn't understand how to pay for things. He didn't understand the process or any of that. And the judge believed that, and so he said, here's what we're going to do. I am going to forgive you. And on behalf of the power that I have, I'm going to wipe your slate clean. Here's your license. Go and don't do it again. And we went out of there, and he almost couldn't believe it. He's like, so how much do we owe them? I'm like, nothing. We owe them nothing. He's like, am I going to have to go to jail? No, nothing. You have been completely restored. As far as anybody knows, you are a perfect, law-abiding citizen of the United States of America at this point. You don't owe anybody anything because you've been truly forgiven. And you know, the amazing part of it wasn't just that he was so relieved to have that taken care of, although that was a big deal. You know what he was most relieved about was that our relationship had been taken care of, that we were back in fellowship, in friendship, in a close relationship like we always had been before, and the forgiveness didn't just wipe his slate clean, it restored him in the relationship that we had with each other. And forgiveness from God is very similar to that. See, we, we're comfortable with the heavenly court scene. And that's how this psalm opens. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, 
whose sin is covered, whom the Lord counts no iniquity. See, there's three words for sin in this opening line. And if you remember from last week, as Kerwin mentioned, when you're really serious about something, in Hebrew, you triple it. So we've got sin, sin, sin. And these are all synonyms for the kinds of sin that we can commit. The first one is the garden variety word for sin, which means rebellion and disobedience against the God of the universe. That is all sin. All sin is a violation of what God has designed us and instructed us to be. And so, blessed is the man whose transgression, whose willful disobedience to the God of the universe is forgiven. But secondly, the next word for sin is the kind of sin when you disobey a known law. This is when you become a law breaker. And what God did at the very beginning is he started to give his people laws. And if you look through the Old Testament, there's a lot of these laws, 613 in the Mosaic Covenant and even more in your Old Testament of this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do. And so the second one reminds us it's not just rebelling against God, it's violating the word that he's spoken to us that we know. And then lastly, there's an internal sense to this word iniquity. This is, this is like when you sin and you have to reap the earthly consequences of it. It's that kind of sin. Blessed is the one who, though they sin, 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 they are forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. That's what this psalm says. There's three kinds of sin. There's three kinds of forgiveness. Forgiven means the debt has been removed. The guilt has been removed. Covered means it has been paid for, atoned for. It will never come back. And not counted means when God looks at you, he sees his holy, perfect son instead of whatever you've done in the past. The remedy for sin, even the highest kinds of sin, is the forgiveness of God. And in fact, this exchange is what it means to become a Christian. When you put your trust in God, what happens is, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he makes Christ to be sin, even though he knew no sin, perfect, spotless, blameless. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. What happens when you become a Christian is, Starting now, extending into eternity past and eternity future, you have been forgiven, forgiven, forgiven by God. And the rest of your life, you are free from the power of sin. And we're all pretty comfortable with that. If you've been in church for any amount of time or if you're a Christian, you understand that when you are forgiven by God, that covers everything. It covers your deepest, darkest sins. But here's the thing that we're not as comfortable with. The rest of your life is getting used to that forgiveness. The rest of your life is actually a long process of putting sin to death in your life so that you can live up to what God sees you as in Christ. This is what we call in theology sanctification, which the word sanct at the beginning of that just means holy. It's the process of becoming holy, the process of becoming who we are in Christ, the process of growing up into what God always designed us to be. And the hardest part about forgiveness and repentance is not turning your life over to Christ and receiving it. It's living it every day after that. Because if you've tried to live for a, as a Christian for like a day, you realize your old nature is not completely gone yet. Your tendencies and the old self like to creep back into your life. Whether it's old habits or old friendships or old patterns that your life is in, we all continue to stumble and fall, but our trajectory should be towards Christ. 
And you know, what troubles me is we're not seeing holiness on a grand scale in the world or in our country or in our communities. And here's why I think that is. Because we don't want to be called account for anything in our culture today. Not just us as individuals. I'm just saying the, per, the pervasive waters we swim in is if you are condemned, you must be hated. Or if somebody says you shouldn't do this, you should do this, then you have been violated. Your dignity has been reproached. And what we believe in Scripture is we should be convicted every day. The difference is we know what to do with conviction. We know what to do with guilt. We know what to do with sin, and the outer world doesn't. Some of our best testimony is, do you want to be free from your guilt? Do you want to be free from sin? Do you remember in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is approaching Calvary, and he's got these weights that he's been carrying for this entire journey, and as he starts to go up the hill to the cross, the weights begin to fall off, and as he gets up very close, all of a sudden, the weights fall into the empty tomb, and they're never seen again. People should be able to look at our lives and say, how, how can you say like Paul, though I was the chief of sinners, now I am a trophy of God's mercy and grace? How, after admitting all the things that I've done, all the ways I'm inadequate, I have no guilt, my conscience is clear, I am free before God. How do you do that? That's what this psalm teaches us to do. So after the first line of this psalm, what we do is we walk through a pattern, or really we walk through about four steps of what we shouldn't do with our guilt and what we should do with our guilt. And what this psalm does is teaches us there is a way to be free, there is a way to be holy, there is a way to grow, but it only comes through regular confession and repentance before God. So if you'll turn your attention to verse 2, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's two things at the beginning of the psalm that we cannot do if we want to grow and we want to be free from sin. And then it follows it with two things that you must do if you want to grow in repentance. The first thing is, he says, if you want the blessed life, notice how this psalm starts. Blessed is the one. Blessed is the man. The blessed life is the goal of walking with Christ. Do you remember how Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed is the one who? Blessed is the peacemaker. Blessed are all these qualities, and if you want to live the blessed life, he's describing what that life looks like. In fact, we talked last week about what it means to bless the Lord, to speak highly of him, to treasure him. And if you want to be somebody who is blessed, the Psalms actually open with a picture of a blessed person. In Psalm chapter 1, it said, blessed is the one who does not walk in the ways of the wicked, but in whom delights in the law of the Lord. And the picture that it gives is like a tree that's planted by a spring of water so that no matter what season it is, that tree is always watered. And because of that, it is always blooming. And because of that, it is always bearing fruit. No matter what season it is, no matter what the weather's like, no matter what the conditions are, the blessed person is somebody whose life is filled with the fruit of the Spirit in all times. It says, you want to be blessed? On the positive side, meditate on the law of the Lord. But you know what happens when you meditate on the law of the Lord? You get convicted. If you've been in a Bible reading plan, you realize if you're going to spend some time in God's word, you're going to be convicted. So he follows it up in this psalm by saying, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. You want to live the blessed life? You've got to know what it's like to be forgiven. If you want to know what it's like to be forgiven, here's what you can't do. You cannot stay where you are. You cannot stay where you are. See, 
if you're going to be blessed, you're going to do something with your guilt, you have to realize that the Christian life is in motion. Many of us think our Christian life is like, all right, now I've got my insurance policy and I can do whatever I want because my eternity is secure. The Bible nowhere describes the Christian life like that. The Christian life is in motion. It's not always forward. It's not always up and to the right. It's really more like climbing a mountain range where you're going up and down, but your elevation is constantly going towards the peak. You know, in history, there's a great example of this, and and if you know anything about Martin Luther, you'll remember that before Martin Luther did the whole Reformation thing and all the 95 theses on the doors of the Wittenberg Cathedral, he was a monk. And the problem for Martin Luther was he was going to confession three hours every day and wanting to go more, right? (laughs) His uh, confessor, the person that was listening to this, I mean, what a person of patience, honestly. You've got this guy coming to you three hours a day, and then when he's done, he's like, actually, I just remembered some other stuff. He's like, sorry, we're closed. Can't, can't do anything more for you. And so he comes day after day, and he's wrestling, and he's guilty, and he can't get rid of all this sin in his life. And so what he starts to do is he's teaching at the time, and he's teaching the book of Romans. So he's going through, and he's preparing notes. He's basically in a seminary at this point. And he begins to read the beginning of the book of Romans, And he gets to the theme verse of the book of Romans, which is in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And he comes across this phrase, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew, also to the Greek, for in it the righteous, and the word righteous just means the high standard of God, the moral perfection of God, is revealed from faith for faith, As it is written, and these words changed history forever because they changed his life forever. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. What Luther realized is, under your own effort, there is no way to be righteous. There is no way, no matter how much you confess, no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, no matter if your disposition is just toward doing the right things, you never on your own could possibly measure up to God's standard. But instead, the righteous life doesn't come from our effort. It doesn't come from law. It comes from faith. When you put your trust in Christ, he begins a redemption project in your life that begins to make you into the righteous child of God that you are. It's like there's a high bar and your life is a scatter plot underneath. And what he does is he starts to take all these areas of your life and inch them up towards the righteous image he created you to be. And what shook Martin Luther at that time was he realized all of his confessing was doing nothing for his soul. In addition to his worry and his guilt, what he needed was to trust in the finished work of Christ and then live like a Christian. So what he did was, he decides he wants to take this broader and have a conversation about it. And this is where there's a lot of misunderstanding, especially among Protestants. What was Martin Luther really trying to do? And I want to read you the first part of what he nailed to that church door because it might surprise you the conversation he wanted to have. See, he starts out and he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, which is all over, it's actually the first thing that Jesus preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And this cannot be done, this is 
This is thesis number two. This cannot be understood as only referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Thesis three, yet, it does not mean solely inner repentance. For such repentance is worthless unless it produces outward mortification of the flesh. See, here's what you can't do if you want to get rid of your guilt, if you want to live for Christ. You can't just stay where you are. See, the life of repentance is one that manifests in the mortification of sin in our life. True repentance leads to new obedience in our life. So, as one pastor put it, it's okay to not be okay. We actually preach a message that if you come to Christ and there's any barrier saying you must act better, you must live up to this standard, you must do this for God to love you, that's not the gospel. The gospel is come, throw yourself on Christ, and then begin to live for him. And in fact, until you come to him, you can't live for him. So don't even try. The first thing you've got to do is surrender. So you come to Christ. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to have a life that's not put together. It's okay to have sin that's ruling over certain areas. Surrender your life to him and watch him get started in your life. So the one thing you can't do is stay where you are. Now here's the second thing. In, in verse 3 of this psalm, David's going to show us what it looks like to do the second thing that you can't do, which is keep your sin to yourself. So in verse 32, he begins to describe what it's like when you try to hold guilt and sin inside. He says, when I kept silent, when my bones were wasting away, through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. What David is describing here is a, is a situation we've all been in. We know the gospel, we know what God requires of us, and then we sin, and what do we do about it? We hide it. That's what we always do. We always hide it. And even though we know in our heads that nothing that you hide gets better, right? this is just a truth of the universe, nothing that is hidden ever just winds up better. Like when I was in college, my mom came and brought us this huge plate of desserts for the holidays, all kinds of cookies and cakes and the special jello concoction that she makes. And we were eating it, I think, at some point, and it just got kicked under the couch. And so at the end of the semester, the following semester, we're getting ready to move out of this room in the fraternity house, and we pick up the couch, and you would not believe what that plate looked like after four months. I mean, it looked like a troll doll, honestly. That jello had sprouted hair that was six inches long. And it's the same thing with your sin. You, you actually are going to degenerate if you hide your sin. In fact, it's not going to be like, I'll just keep everything looking good by keeping this inside. What happens when you look back inside is your sin has become more monstrous and more ghastly than it was when you left it. But this is wired into our nature. Remember what Adam and Eve do at the very beginning? So they're in the garden with God, and they're living in perfect communion with him, and the tempter comes and says, did God really say that you shouldn't do that? And Eve buys into it, and Adam's standing there with him, and the lie in the garden is, you will not surely die. If you do that, you will not surely die. But here's the really diabolical thing about the devil. You know what happens after you sin? The lie changes. Because to get you to sin, what he does is he says, oh, no, 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 you won't surely die. You're just human. Everybody does it. But then you sin, and do you know what the lie becomes then? Oh, you're going to die. You're going to die. Yeah, God said if you do that, you're going to die. You're, I mean, there's no hope for you. You might as well enjoy it while you got time because what you did there, I mean, can you believe that? 
If you ever have to face a holy God, you are going to be in for it. This is what the devil does, right? The devil doesn't have your best interest in mind. The devil's a liar. What he wants to do is destroy you. What's the best way to destroy you? To get you to sin and then riddle you with guilt. That's like the best way ever, and that's exactly what it is. You won't surely die. Oh, you're surely going to die. You are surely going to die. If you ever walked into heaven, into the heavenly throne room of God, and said what you had just done, every cherubim in there would wheel around and say, what? That's what the devil says. And so the lie for us is, you better not let anybody know about this. Because if you do, the consequences are going to be dire. I always think of that picture of walking into the heavenly court like I did when I was with Jean Vier. I always think about the fact that when we walk in there, what really should happen, there's an element of truth in this, what really should happen is everything we've ever done is going to be opened, it's going to be laid out in the books, God's going to see every evil deed, every word that was spoken out of place, he's going to see all those things and say, what am I supposed to do with this? And you know, if you grew up in church, you're like, oh my gosh, Romans 3.20, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death, you deserve in that moment eternal death, but you have an advocate who comes and says, That one is with me. That one is with me. That one has been forgiven. There's no condemnation. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so the mind game that we play with ourselves is we know we're forgiven generally. But did you know that you're forgiven specifically? Did you know that you're forgiven specifically? That actually when you sin, the worst thing you can do is keep it secret? In fact, all over the Bible, it says the only way to really be healed of the power of sin, the only way to be reunited with God is to confess your sin to him, to bring it before him. We believe the lie that the only safe place for sin is in secret. Actually, the only safe place for sin is at the cross of Christ. It's the only safe place in the universe for your sin. We think about coming into a heavenly court with a tyrannical judge instead of coming home like a prodigal child to a father who's willing to forgive and wrap us up in his arms. So if what we can't do is stay where we are and keep our sins secret, what the psalmist turns to in verse 5 is a picture of what we must do. We must confess constantly. We must repent every day. Because, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Everything I thought was going to happen when I came to you actually turned out to be the reverse. You forgave my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Is that what you thought the confession process was going to be like? Surrounded by shouts of deliverance. God is a hiding place for us. God preserves us from trouble. We come to him and we know that we have been forgiven, we are forgiven, we will be forgiven so we can live for him. You know, Tim Keller has a great line about this. He says that our deepest needs as human beings are twofold, to be known and to be loved. That's what every human being really desires at the core, is to be known fully and to be loved. The problem is we mostly deal with substitutes, either fully known and not loved. That's like a worst-case scenario. You are exposed, people know you, and they don't love you. Or to not be known but to be loved, which is just superficial and empty. But the kind of love that God has is a fully knowing, fully loving kind of love. He knows everything about you and 
loves you. He's the kind of person that when you come to them, they don't dismiss your sin. He paid for it. And so he's willing to shout over the deliverance of your heart and of your soul. Now, two things that probably somebody in here is thinking. Why confess my sins if I'm already forgiven? Right? That's, that's one of them. Why confess my sins if I'm already forgiven? And the second thing would be kind of a different version of that, which is, so are you saying that if I don't confess every sin, I won't be forgiven? Now, these are two great questions because it makes us think about the nature of that overarching forgiveness and the specific forgiveness. So why confess if God already knows and he's already forgiven? Because your confession as a Christian is different than your repentance as a non-Christian. Your repentance as a non-Christian gets you before the throne of God saying, I can never do it, I need you, take my sin, forgive them, I want to be a part of your family. Once you are in the family, once you are a Christian, when you confess, what it is doing is restoring the relationship with God. Right, So becoming a Christian is like Jean Vier going before the judge and having everything wiped clean. But forgiveness as a Christian is like when he and I got back in the car together and we're back talking and in fellowship with each other. See, your life as a Christian is one that the highest good that you could ever have in your life is to be face to face with God. And every time you go before him and say, God, I still need your grace. I still need you to help me here it brings us a step closer in our fellowship and our walk with God. So you have been forgiven. If you've put your trust in Christ, you have been forgiven. But you are in the process of constantly being restored deeper and deeper into the heart of God. So we must come to him. We must confess, and we must come to him. So the rest of this psalm talks about what it looks like to live a life of godliness and wisdom, to hide in the Lord, to be preserved by him. And I came across this essay from C.S. Lewis this week in the book, The Weight of Glory. And it's the last essay in the book, and it's called A Slip of the Tongue. And what happened was, he says, I was preparing a sermon the other day, and I had a little slip of the tongue in my prayer life. What I wanted to pray was, Lord, help me pass through all of these temporal things so that I can keep my focus on eternal things. But what I actually said was, Lord, help me pass through all these eternal things so I can keep my focus on temporal things. And he said, at first I thought, how silly is that? And then he realized, every time I do something spiritual, I'm doing it so that I can get back to all the other temporal stuff that I had planned. Every time I pray in the morning, every time I study my Bible, it's so that I can continue to live life in the status quo, rather than be conformed into this eternal vision of who God has made me. He says, this is my endlessly recurring temptation, to go down to the sea that is God, and neither dive nor swim nor float, but only dabble and splash. Careful not to get out of my depth, and holding on to the lifeline which connects me with things temporal. Our temptation is to look eagerly for the minimum that will be accepted. We are, in fact, very like honest but reluctant taxpayers. We approve an income tax in principle. We make our returns truthfully, but we dread a rise in the tax rate. We are careful to pay no more than is necessary, and we hope, very ardently hope, that after we have paid it, there will still be enough left to live on. That was a very convicting passage to read for me. Because how much of us do say, God, what's the minimum? We would never say this to God, but what's the minimum i got to do to stay in your good graces? 
What's the minimum I've got to do to stay a good Christian? What's the minimum I need to do today? What's the minimal amount of time I need to pray or talk to you so I can get back to my regular, everyday life? But that's just not the way God does things. See, what this psalm shows us is if you're going to live a life before the face of God, repenting, turning to him, putting your sin to death, he wants it all. He wants every part of it. And that doesn't mean you have to be cloistered in a cell like Martin Luther, thinking and praying and confessing all day. It means that you give him access to every part of who you are, all of your life, every corner of it, and you focus on the things that he's doing, that he's called you to do, and not getting back to your everyday life. Because the truth of the matter is, if you're a Christian, your everyday life is your relationship with God. And he wants it all. So what does that mean for us? We want to be a big grace kind of church. Everybody's been to a church, everybody's been around Christians who are okay with the small, acceptable sins. But that's not us. We want to be the kind of people who trust that God can forgive the outrageous sins. That if you come and you go to God and you receive the words of Christ, you are forgiven, go and sin no more. That is a real possibility in your life. That that is something that the Holy Spirit over time and through people that you see around here is going to do in your life is free you from your guilt and your sin and move you towards what you were created to be in God. This is not a church for people with small sins. This is a church for people with big grace in their life. And if you need big grace, you've come to the right place and the right Savior. Jesus Christ is a Savior who can forgive any sin in your life. He can turn anything around in your life, but you have to come to him. And not just once. You have to come to him all the time, laying down our old self, living in it as our new self. Lewis ends his essay this way. God claims all because he must love and bless all. He cannot bless us unless he has us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims it all. There is no bargaining with him. So as Sean comes back up this morning, I want to take a moment and just set aside a space for us to go before him. Not to rededicate our lives necessarily, but as Christians to say, Lord, today and every day, I need you. Today and every day, help me to live more like you. Today and every day, Lord, forgive me for the ways that I still fall short of what you've called me to do. And I want you guys to think in, keep in mind if you've got your Bibles open or if you're just thinking about this as you pray. Verse 7 of this psalm is the high point. And what it says is, anybody who is godly offers a prayer to you and comes, and this is the response. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Let's take a minute and go before him. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, remind us that your mercy and your grace extend through our whole lives. Father, I pray if there's anybody in here this morning who feels like they became a Christian and they haven't measured up, that you would free them from that this morning. Father, I pray that you would give us a new glimpse of what your grace in our life looks like. The ongoing surrender of our life to you the gradual transformation by your spirit. Renewed minds, light shining into the darkest places of our life. Father, I pray that you would bring your promise that what you started in us, you will complete in us to mind. 
Father, now, if there are people who are confessing things to you for the first time, Father, would you rush in and free them of their guilt? Lord, would you assure them that their sin is taken and nailed to the cross, paid in full? And Father, help us every day to turn our hearts over to you, to live fully before your face, to be fully dependent on you. Father, to trust in the strength of your spirit to turn us into the children of God that you've declared us to be. In Jesus' name we pray.